The Money Show. Shapeshifters. Tonight's shapeshifter is Fred Swanaker. He's the founder of the Africa an African Leadership University. And uh, many of you will know Fred. I certainly know if we had a brief discussion about two months ago and my LinkedIn profile went absolutely mad. But there are many people who don't know Fred, don't know the African Leadership University and the drive that Fred Swanaker has got to really uplift leadership on the African continent and to help the African continent develop its skills, particularly in the world of technology. Let's go back to the beginning. Where were you born? When were you born? Uh, who were you born to? <laughs> I was born to two people. Oh, um, that's unusual. Yes, very unusual. Uh, in Ghana. Okay. Um, and uh, my, my mother was a, was a teacher and my, my, my dad was a magistrate. Um, and um, but left Ghana at the age of four due to political instability. I was about to say, what's happening in Ghana at the time you're born? Because you know, I, I'm not guessing your age or anything. But you know, independence brought some, uh, its own share of excitement. Yes, yeah. it, it was. It was a time of instability. Uh, the economy wasn't doing so well, uh, so it wasn't a very nice time to be living in Ghana. So uh, we left, um, and I went to Gambia uh, until I was eight, um, and then. Um, you know, when I was 12, we moved to Botswana, and then when I was, uh, and then they left me, th- sorry, when I was eight, we moved to Botswana, and then after that, uh, I moved to, um, uh, to Zimbabwe. So um, by the time I was 16, I lived in four different countries in Africa. And I, every four years. Every four moved. years, exactly, yeah. How destabilizing was that? Or, or was it something that sort of shaped your head about this continent in a way that otherwise you might not have had? It was absolutely transformative for me. Um, it, it really changed my identity from being a Ghanaian to an African. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, it, it got me to see uh, all the beauty that was in Africa. I fell in love with the continent. Um, and, but I also saw some of the challenges that we had, uh, contrasting the political instability and the lack of infrastructure that I experienced in Ghana and Gambia. And then when we moved to Botswana and Zimbabwe, and at the time I was like, wow, very different. There's, there's both countries light years ahead. At exactly, time, yeah. at the time. You know, good infrastructure, decent leadership. This was before Bob Mugabe sort of lost things. Yeah. So um, it was really, it showed me that it was possible to see progress in Africa. And it made me realize that what I had experienced in Ghana and Gambia was not what it had, was not um, destiny, that you could actually mm. change things. And also, living in Botswana at the time, uh, we didn't have a national television, so we used to watch South African TV. Sorry about that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> TV1, TV2. Exactly. exactly yeah. I really apologize, yes. <laughs> but that was also transformative for me because that's when I would see, it was in the middle of the apartheid years. Yes, absolutely. And I would see every night, you know, on the news, they would be offering Nelson Mandela a chance to come out of jail if he would give up the, the apartheid struggle, and you'd see Desmond Tutu in the streets. And I was, I remember being struck by how, due to their resilience and their perseverance, those two people, and of course, they inspired a whole nation, but they were able to drive change. And I realized that leadership would make or break Africa. And Nelson Mandela's power was his ability to refuse to be released exactly. until P.W. Buerta agreed that there, there was, he should suspend the arms struggle, exactly. suspend the arms struggle and you could be released. Well, you can't release me uh, if that's the condition. No, exactly. exactly. I, I will not be held to ransom, so I'd rather stay in jail. Thank exactly. you very much. And that's, exactly. I mean, for a guy who at that time had probably been in jail for 22, 23, 24 years exactly. already. Exactly. He didn't take the easy way out. No. And, you know, that's when I really saw that, you know, leadership is hard. Um, you have to stick to your principles, um, and um, you know if you have re- if you have resilience and and and, uh, and perseverance, you can really bring change. And also, it showed me the power of just 
one or two people in transforming society. And so the power of the individual yes. is something that is underrated. They say there's no I in team, but there is an I in leadership. I mean, it's, um, uh, that was quite good, actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll copyright that. Um, but it's, it's the, the, the world has been changed by powerful individuals who have been able to convince societies to come along with them. Exactly. No one brings about change alone. No. You know, as a leader, you have to catalyze people, you know, uh, uh, a movement around you. You have to, you know, inspire others to, to believe in doing something that they themselves didn't think they were capable of, right? So you absolutely need to move people. Mm. Um, but uh, it does often start with just one or two people. Yeah, well, the, all great movements have. Somebody yes. has an idea and is able to convince others to come along on the journey with them. Where did you study? Um, did, you, did you finish school in Zimbabwe? And I finished school in Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. um, and then I had a very interesting experience when my dad had just passed away. Uh, and my mother was, um, you know, had four children to look after. And uh, parents approached them and said, you know, you've got a good track record as a teacher. Why don't you start a school? And she says, well, I can't quit my job and... You know, I've got to find money to send, send my four kids to school. And so they insisted and eventually she started a small study group. Fred, your, your microphone is doing terrible things. And George is just coming around to you now just to help you, uh, just to strengthen it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. your, 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 mic, your microphone was becoming flaccid. Um, <laughs> All right. <laughs> sorry. And your, your mum, and I was, I was distracted by that. But your mum, as a teacher, was invited to start a school. Yeah, yeah she was invited to start a school. But, you know, obviously because her husband had just passed away, she, um, you know, didn't have the resources uh, and, and couldn't really quit her job to do that. So um, she eventually was convinced to start a small study group with five children. It grew to about 25 kids. And by this time, I had finished my high school and I had a year to wait before I went to college. So she made me the headmaster of the school. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I ran the school for a year. And uh, that's when I learned uh, what educational entrepreneurship was all about uh, and saw the power of education transforming uh, society. Um, and then I went off to college in the U.S. I went to a small college in Minnesota called McAllister College and moved to South Africa and joined McKinsey. Did work with them for about two years all across Africa. Uh, and then um, went back to the States, this time to Stanford, to do my MBA. Okay. And then while I was there, I was just reflecting on all this experience of living and working in different parts of Africa. And I'd come to see that importance of leadership. And I thought, you know, do we just sit and hope that Africa gets good leaders by accident, or could we actually develop a more deliberate way of, mm. of, of, of grooming our leaders? And that's when, you know, I reflect on this experience of starting a school and sort of, if you want doctors, you build a, a, a medical school. If you want lawyers, you create a law school. So if yeah. you want good leaders, maybe we should create a leadership school. <laughs> and that's uh, what you've created. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Yeah. Uh, a quick quiz question to you. It's a question mm. I asked to a former chief executive of Exclusive Books. Mm. And I asked him, are there more books on your shelves <coughs> about leadership or sex? <laughs> Which do you think there are? Probably leadership. I'll give you the answer in just a moment. <laughs> the Money Show. Shapeshifters. We're very lucky to have in studio with us this evening Fred Swanaker, who is the founder at the African Leadership University. He is uh, domiciled in Nairobi, in Kenya. He's lived all over the African continent. He's lived for a while in Johannesburg. He's lived in Mauritius as well. Uh, coming to South Africa as an African is quite hard, isn't it? It is, unfortunately. I mean, I just uh, uh, got finally got a visa to come here. Uh, and um, I got a three-month visa. Um, and uh, in comparison, I have a 10-year visa to the UK. 
I have a five-year visa to the U.S. I have a four-year visa to Canada and four-year visa to Schengen region. And I don't pay taxes in any of those countries. I pay taxes in South Africa. I own a home in South Africa. I have a company that I started here. I employ about 150 South Africans. And I only got three months to come here. And I'm developing South African leaders as well. Like the SABC in the 1980s, I apologize. I mean, it's it's just, and again, and it's inconvenient to you, but does huge harm to South Africa because not everybody's got your patience. You know, um, other people may go, well, then I'll take my business elsewhere. Exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. Cheers, I'm off. Exactly, exactly. exactly. Uh, it's, it's, frust- it's frustrating. It's, as quite, it's quite unfortunate because South Africa has had quite a good start, but it's losing its competitiveness. Yeah. Because people have alternatives. They can invest in other countries. You know, they don't have to come to South Africa. So. And they can get their electricity when they flick a switch. <laughs> anyway, let's not talk about petty, um, well, absolutely critical issues. Uh, the petty issue is, um, are there more books on sex or leadership at exclusive books? I asked you that question. I won't ask you for the proportions because it may be, be quite embarrassing. But um, at the time, and this is probably about five or six years ago, there were 25 titles on sex in exclusive books. In that particular branch and 600 on leadership <laughs> which suggests that we people you know the exclusive books thinks we're good at some things and rubbish at others and we need a lot more help in some departments than others but there is a hunger is there not i mean mm. le- leadership is the most spoken about topic in the world it is one of the most complex issues i mean you know, one just has to look at world leaders at present and you see a complete catastrophe of a failure of leadership in so many places. Mm-hmm. Um, and you wonder why it's gone so bad. Have you got a theory on it? I mean, you're absolutely right. Societies are made or broken by leadership. Um, and uh, whether it's in the family or in the community, in the province or in the, in the country. Um, and, um, you know, I th- one of the reasons why I believe that um, leadership has failed us so many times in society is a lot of people find themselves in leadership roles without having been prepared it's thrust upon them by accident. Or they barge their way or into it. Or they barge them into it, exactly. I mean, you look at Donald Trump, you look at Boris Johnson, you look exactly. at so many leaders. Um, it's there because it's a big fat ego trip or it's connections and exactly. it's money. Yeah. Exactly. They're not coming through, they're not approaching with the right value, value system from a spirit of service and, and so forth. So one of the things we're trying to do differently is to actually deliberately develop people for leadership, right? To find people who have demonstrated that spirit of service and uh, understanding and have good values and have passion, courage, and imagination, and then grooming them so that when they eventually do find themselves in leadership roles, they're better prepared. The other thing that I believe needs to happen is that societies need to create structures that make them immune to leaders. Ooh, that's good. And that is ultimately about building strong institutions. Absolutely. So you need to have institutions like the judiciary, like the the, civil society, Mm -hmm. you know, the police force, you know, the, the constitution. These are systems that are bigger than any one person. And they act as checks and balances to the power of the leader. And that allows society to function, whether there's a good leader or a bad leader. Um, and um, you, If you can survive a bad leader, you can rebuild afterwards. But exactly. if your institutions are weak, you, you can never catastrophe. Yeah. Exactly. So you have to build strong institutions. I mean, that's how the U.S. survived Donald Trump. Yeah. That's how South Africa survived Jacob Zuma. Exactly. Just. Just, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so having those institutions are, are, are ways in which we can you know, make ourselves immune. Because the problem, the problem with democracy is that the skills required to win an election are not the skills required to govern effectively. So to win an election, you have to lie, you have to manipulate people, you have True. to form coalitions with people whose values you don't align with, all to get into power. But those are not the skills that you need to, you know, balance a budget properly, 
to come up with. It, it's the old English saying, you know, the dog doesn't know what to do once it's caught the bus. And you get these politicians who get into high office and go, right, now I'm in show. I don't know what to do. Exactly. Now, you are going on a special trip to the United States next week to use that wonderful five-year visa that you've got. Um, <laughs> and you're going off to one of the biggest companies in the world, and you've been invited in as one of a 100 leaders from around the world. What has got you into the Amazon chief executive's home? Um, so, yeah, I'm going to uh, spend time in uh, Seattle um, with Andy Jesse, who's the CEO of Amazon. Um, and um, it's because of the work that we're doing to develop technology talent. So globally, there's a shortage of 50 to, 70 to, to 97 million people uh, that, that are needed to fill technology roles in the world because the world is going through a massive digital transformation, which has been accelerated by COVID. And um, historically, global companies would find this technology talent in countries like China and India. Uh, in Eastern Europe. And they've deliberately built those skills over the last decade and a half, two decades, exactly. to ensure that they ha do get a dominance in those sectors. Exactly. Yeah. So today, for example, there are 26.5 million software engineers in the world. China has the largest number at 7.7 .7 million. Uh, India has 5.8 million. Mm. The US has 4.8, 4 million. Um, Africa only has 700,000 software engineers. Yeah. Now yet, the average age of uh, German or Japanese is 48. The Chinese are uh, aging, the Indians are aging. And so when you look at this shortage of technology talent, the, uh, we believe that the only place that can s solve this is Africa because the average age of an African is 19. And uh, we're going to be 40% of the world's population by the end of the century. So it doesn't make sense to me that we only have 2.6% of the world's software engineers. And we're kind of bumbling along hoping that, you know, because we've got this demographic dividend, it's all going to, we're going to have a huge number of consumers on the continent. And just, you know, cell phones are going to create entrepreneurs. And then everyone's going to be capable and work hard and be brilliant. And it's just going to be fabulous. Nothing happens by accident. Nothing I mean, happens by accident. You need a plan. You, you, you look at pictures of Beijing in the 1950s versus pictures of Beijing today. You look at pictures of the famous ones of Dubai in the 1970s with one tower block and a gravel road or mm -hmm. dust road. And mm -hmm. you look at the pictures today. We go and experience it today. And there mm -hmm. is none of that stuff happened just because it happened because there's an, a natural process and evolution. It is a deliberate, completely strategic leadership role absolutely that is taken and deliberate decisions and actions are taken absolutely. to make it happen. You need a vision and then you need to back that vision with a clear strategy. And then you exactly need to execute. And then you need to execute exactly. Policies deliver. are not enough. You need to get things done. So one of the things that I see is a great opportunity for Africa but it needs a deliberate approach is we need to actually reposition Africa as the next India, the next China, yeah. when it comes to technology talent. We have our greatest asset as a continent is our population, but it needs to be transformed the skill in, into a high, um, highly skilled population that comes through ed from education and, uh, and, 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 and skills development. Where and, is the best education in Africa happening? Um, well, you know, Where are you seeing the greatest talent coming from? The raw materials you could work with? Very good question. Very good question. So in the African Leadership Group, which is the organization that you know, I've started over the last 20 years, we have the African Leadership Academy in South Africa. We have the African Leadership University, which has Mauritius and Rwanda campuses. We also have ALX, where we're training software engineers. Today, we're training mm. about 100,000 software engineers across Africa. And our goal is to develop about you know, several million highly skilled yeah. people in the next decade. Um, what we find in all our work in selecting and developing talent across the, the continent and we literally draw talent from about 45 countries, yep. is that, unfortunately, South Africa doesn't have the best education system. We know this. Yeah. We know this. <laughs> Despite having 
more money that is spent on we spend as a proportion of our gdp the most money in the world on education yes, yes. and we we may as well for all of its for all of its worth take it and check the money in the bin it'll uh, cause less disappointment it's not working and you need a different approach so where do we find good uh, uh, you know the raw talent we find kenya is fantastic um, Zimbabwe, surprisingly, continues to produce. So, Zimbabwe's education system, which was the one thing that kept it really stable and so good for so long, has been maintained. Yeah, surprisingly. Yeah. So, and then we see some good talent from North Africa, Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt. Absolutely. Um, and then also, you know, the Francophone countries, uh, surprisingly quite strong in math and science. Okay, so there's a huge amount of hope on our continent, um, but it is something that those countries focus on because they understand that future leaders come from great education, mm-hmm. better education. Mm-hmm. And then once they get to your hands, you then mold and shape. Exactly. And then we, 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 we develop them and then we connect them to organizations that need this talent. But one of the things we're trying to do, especially with the technology, is to export the talent, but without the brain drain. So, but uh, so many people and so many African business leaders I've spoken to have been educated like yourself at the Princetons and the Harvards of the world, but they've gone out with the deliberate per- objective of getting the experience and bringing it back, and so many people are doing that. The diaspora returns. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that the you know, talent is Africa's greatest resource, and we have to be de- deliberate about um, you know creating value and capturing value uh, for the continent through this talent. So, if you look at in India, for example, uh, nine, they, they generate about two hundred and thirty billion dollars a year in foreign exchange from their technology services. Um, but 90% of that comes from outside of India. Yeah. So, so people work remotely for companies all around the world. And I think the same thing can happen here. Yeah, COVID has made companies a lot more open to remote talent. So, so you can be a software engineer sitting in Cape Town working for a German company. You can be sitting in Lagos. I was speaking to a call center the other day, organizing some additional baggage for an overseas flight. Where are you? Oh, I'm in India. Exactly. Incredible. Exactly. Fred Swanica, we must leave it there, unfortunately. Time is against us. But thank you for coming in. Lovely to see you. Thank you uh, the friend. founder at the African Leadership University, Fred Swanica.